How many of you have heard that phrase, bigger is better? You guys heard that phrase, bigger is better? Like there's times when bigger is better is true, you know, like, uh, you know, like a bank account. It's good to have a bigger bank account, I guess. Uh, don't judge me here, okay? Don't judge me. You're going to be tempted. I try to be a very sacrificial person, others-oriented. I find myself being very giving to others. At least I think I am. But when it comes to me cutting a piece of pie, it doesn't matter who I'm cutting pie for. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is. I will always, always take the bigger piece of pie. That's just the way. Now, it's, this is not true with cake or ice cream. Like, I don't care about that. But when it comes to no-bake cookies and pie, bigger is always better. Can I get an amen for that? Somebody feeling me here? You know, in society, we celebrate this idea of bigger is better. We, 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 we celebrate big, right? We like big business. We like big bank accounts. We like a big church. Whatever it is, we think bigger is better. And so when you have something big, those are the people that we uh, try and learn from. Those are the people we follow on social media. Those are the people we try to learn from and, and follow in their footsteps. Listen, in your life, how have you seen this play out where you begin to think that bigger is better? I'll tell you a story for me. Because sometimes this idea that bigger is better slips into our faith. And so years ago, when I worked at Madison House, I'm trying to figure out like, all right, how do we make a big impact in our city? You know, I'm working at this youth center. I'm loving it. But how can we make a big impact in our city? And so I think, I know what I need to do. I need to throw a big party. I need to throw a big party. So we did this. We threw this big Christmas party. On a single day, we would have 2,000 women and kids come through our doors we would be able to give refreshments to them and give everybody a, a, a new gift. Uh, we gave them a, a, a bag of, of cookie, of candy. Um, we had, um, uh, man, I, I don't even remember all the things we did, winter hats, all sorts of good things. And as these people would come in, we'd have the opportunity to give a gospel presentation so they could hear about Jesus. And I'll tell you what, this was a huge event. It took tons and tons and tons of time and money and effort to make everything happen. But it was great because as we would do this event, we would have 250 hands that would be raised to say, I want to follow Jesus. And it was pretty exciting to be able to see that. Well, then there was this one day after one of these events, I was talking to someone a lot wiser than me. Uh, it's my wife, if you're curious about who that is. I have no problem admitting that. I'm talking to my wife, and she asks me a question. She said, when you consider all that you do, Kevin, all that you put your effort into, Christmas parties and all these things that you do, what is the most effective at actually changing lives? I begin to think about this. As I think about this big Christmas party that we'd have thousands of people come through our door, I couldn't think of a single person whose life was dramatically different because they came to this party. And then I began to think about, well, well, whose lives have I seen change? And the lives that I saw change were the kids who would come to Madison House every day. They're the kids that I would sit and play, kick a soccer ball back and forth to. They were the kids that I would sit across a dinner table and have a conversation with them about life and Jesus and how these things flow together. In fact, when I think about that season of, of ministry and I think about those lives who, people who overcame tremendous circumstances, people who were walking with, with Jesus, who were living out their faith, 
Man, they weren't the result of us doing this big, grand, big party. It was those simple, everyday moments that brought about change. Now, I'm not saying that Christmas party, I'm not saying that those that prayed to receive Jesus, I'm not saying those things weren't real. I think God plants seeds in all sorts of circumstances. But what I'm saying is that the greatest impact that I think we made in that season of ministry was a result of small, everyday moments. In fact, think about this in relationships. Maybe you've experienced this in your relationships. For, you know, when I got married, my mom didn't train me very well to understand what women want. I wasn't very good with the whole ladies thing. Somehow I got Samantha to say yes, uh, but I don't know how I did it. And so our very first Christmas together, I'm like, hey, I need to get her something great. You know, and because I didn't know a ton, I thought, well, bigger is better. More expensive is better. And so I did what most, most young newlywed men do. I went to Fred Meyers on New Christmas Eve, because that's when you do your Christmas shopping, right? I go to Fred Meyers, and there's this, this basket, this gift basket. And I'm like, it is $120 value on sale for 40 bucks. Like, husband of the year right here? Like, it was, gr- I like, oh, she's gonna love me. Like, inside this basket, there was tons of stuff. There was like bubble bath and chocolate and beef jerky and a deck of baseball cards and a quart of oil. Like, what woman wouldn't want all of that? I am thankful that Samantha has been gracious to me for many years, especially that year. You know, I've learned a lot since then. And I've learned it's not necessarily the big things that make the biggest difference. In fact, a couple years ago for Christmas, uh, Sam used to keep this blog when our kids were really young. She'd write stories about what's happening in her life and she'd post pictures. So a couple years ago, I went and I found her old blog and I pulled all the blog posts with all the pictures and I put it into a book form and I printed it. And it was such a small thing but it was one of her favorite surprises ever. And it was a small thing, not a big thing. This January, we've been in this conversation about how we can have a bold faith, about how we can grow a faith that is like what Jesus talks about in Matthew 17, because Jesus said, even if we have a small amount of faith, that we could move mountains. And as we think about like 2022 and all that we want to see God do in our lives, in our family, in our church, in our community, man, I want to have a bold faith that moves mountains. And so we're talking about how we can grow this bold faith. And I'm not talking about a faith that just talks about going to church and joining a small group. I'm talking about a faith that is actually how we trust in God how we believe in him, how we rely on him and believe that he is active and working. So today, we're gonna be in 2 Kings chapter five, the passage passage that Jake read for us. And this is our final week looking at a couple stories from the life of Elijah. And this week, the story's gonna deal with how sometimes we feel a need to do big things for God. Sometimes we feel a need to do something big to show God how great we are, to show how, how, how deserving we are, or how much we love him, right? So maybe, maybe for us, maybe it's in light of how good God is. We learn how great God is, and we're like, man, I need to do something big. Or maybe, maybe we have some guilt in our life for whatever circumstance, whatever reason. We've got some guilt. Man, I need to do something big to God so he knows how sorry I am. Or, or maybe, maybe we're just feeling overwhelmed with circumstances and we don't know what to do. And we're like, we really need God to show up and, and do something. And so we feel like, 
well, if God's gonna do that, I need to do something big. I need to earn God's favor. And that's exactly what we try and do. We try and earn God's favor. So our story today is gonna teach us that often uh, God brings the greatest impact on our life. Not from the big and great things we do from God. Oftentimes, God brings the greatest impact on our life through simple steps of faith and obedience. And through these simple, small steps of faith and obedience, God uses those things to move mountains in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our community. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, we are introduced to a guy by the name of Naaman. And it describes him as being a uh, commander of the army. Describes him as being a a great man, highly favored, a man of valor. Okay, we would say that this guy is uber successful. He'd been like a general in the army. And now he's kind of like in a a prime minister role. He's kind of vice president or maybe a cabinet member uh, of uh, of the president's cabinet. He's a high-ranking official. He's popular. He's like a social media star. Everybody knows who he is. Do they call those people influencers? He's an influencer. Everybody likes him. But he has a little bit of a problem. Because the end of verse 1, it says, but he was a leper. And that would have been a devastating news for this man. See, leprosy, leprosy is, uh, and that day was one of the most feared diseases in the world. Because what would start as, as a little white spot on your skin, that was essentially nothing more than a little rash, it would spread all over your body. In fact, the nerve endings on your body would begin to, to die. Your hair would fall out. Listen, I promise I don't have leprosy. My hair is just falling out naturally. But if you had leprosy, your hair would begin to fall out. And then you'd have boils that break out over all your body, leaving uh, uh, gaping wounds of raw flesh. Basically, if you had leprosy, you were like the walking dead, literally. We're not told how Naaman responds. But in those days, there was no cure for leprosy. It had a 100% death rate. And because in that society, they believed it was highly contagious. So if you had leprosy, you were cast out from society. You were a nobody. Listen, think about Naaman. Again, here's a guy who's super successful, he's popular, and in a moment, his life gets flipped, turned upside down, and everything changes. Verse two, verse two, his wife, his wife has a servant girl. Now, again, let's just think about that society. And that society, a servant was a low-class person, and if you were a woman and a servant, you were even lower. And if you were a child and a woman and a servant, you were the lowest of the low. And that is the person who's going to tell Naaman, hey, there's an opportunity for you to be healed. Because a servant girl says to him, there's a prophet in Samaria who can cure you of leprosy. So verse 4, Naaman, he goes goes and he tells his master, who's the king of Syria. He says, hey, there's a servant girl who says that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal me. So verse 5, the king of Syria says, here's what you're going to do. I want you to go now. I want you to go and find the king of Israel. Now I'm going to send a letter with, I'm going to send a letter with, letter with you. So Naaman goes and he brings along with him 10 talents of silver, six shekels of gold, uh, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, this was a huge sum of money, okay? Essentially, Naaman is going to go with this letter to go find the king of uh, Israel. And alongside him, he's got 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. This is a pretty big gift, right? So verse 6 says that he, he brings this letter to the king of Israel. 
And verse 7 says, the king of Israel, he tore his clothes. And here's what the king of Israel says. He says, am I God? Am I God that I can kill and make people live? What am I supposed to do to heal leprosy? Only consider they are seeking a fight with me. What the king thinks is essentially, hey, the king of Syria sent this man to me because he's trying to start a war. He's trying to, he knows I can't heal this man of, of leprosy. So he's trying to start a war with me. Now, I want to pause here right now because we're kind of running through the story. You notice, notice who it was that the servant girl said was going to heal you. The servant girl said, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you of leprosy. And who did, who did Naaman go and talk to? Did he talk to the prophet? No, he talked to the king of Syria. All right, the king of Syria. Okay, he tells him there's a prophet who can heal me. And who does the king of Syria tell him to go see? The king of Israel. And then you look in the letter in verse 6, the king of Syria says to the king of Israel, you, you are the one that's going to heal him. You see, somehow, somehow, the people on the story, Naaman and the king of Syria and the king of Israel, man, they couldn't imagine that it wouldn't be some high-ranking official. It wouldn't be some great person who would heal. They couldn't imagine that it would be some obscure prophet often some obscure country that's going to actually bring healing. But verse 8 says, When Elisha, who is a man of God, when he heard that the king had tore his clothes, he said to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? And I want you to listen to this, because this is why Elisha is willing to help. He says, Let Naaman, let me come to Naaman, that Naaman may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That right there is an incredible statement. And we're going to come back to that. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Naaman says, I'm going to help this guy out so that he would know that there is a prophet in Israel. So verse 9, it says that Naaman, he comes with horses and chariots, and he stood under the door of, of Elisha's house. Here he is. He, he's come to Elisha's house, and he stands at the door and he knocks. And Elisha sends a messenger. And the messenger says, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be clean. Here's what happened. Elisha doesn't even come outside, right? Now, Elisha's house would have been, it's not like a big, it would have been a hut, right? And so can you imagine Naaman knocking on the door? The door opens. He sees Elisha sitting on his phone playing Angry Birds. He sees him right there, but Elisha doesn't get up. He sends his servant out and says, go jump in the river. Okay, this, this would have been like if Vladimir Putin would come to my house and he's got the cavalry and a couple tanks parked outside. He comes to my house, and instead of me answering the door, I'm like, hey, Zach, you're the youth leader. Go answer the door. And Putin looks in and sees me cheering for the Cincinnati Bengals in the football game. Essentially, that's what we have going on here. And so Naaman is angry. He's like, don't you know who I am? And you don't even get off your couch to come and talk to me? And verse 10, verse 11 says, Naaman was angry and thought surely the prophet would come out and see me. And he'd call on God and he'd wave his hand and cure me. I mean, Naaman's like, there's got to be more than just this. I mean, shouldn't like this prophet come and, and wave his hands or, or, or do this hocus pocus or, or, or do this some sort of something? Kind of like one of those weird uh, healing ceremonies you see on TV. Like there's got to be something more than just go jump in the river. And then you think about the river. It's the Jordan River. And this is what Naaman says in verse 12. 
He says, are not the Abana and the Farpur River, which are the rivers in Syria, which are beautiful, aren't they much better than the muddy, small Jordan River? And it says that Naaman turned and left in a, rain, in, in a rage. Naaman's kind of like, I came all this way to find this prophet to be healed. He doesn't even talk to me, but just tells me to go jump in a river. This is dumb. And, and Naaman, in honor of meatloaf, who died this week, Naaman's like, I would do anything for healing, but I won't do that, right? Fortunately, Naaman's got a servant, got a couple of servants. In verse 13, the servants say this, if the great word that the prophet had spoken, would you not have done it? Yet he only said, go and wash and clean. In other words, the servants are like, hey, listen, listen, Naaman. If the prophet said to go climb to the top of Mount Everest and grab some berries, uh, certainly you would have done that. If the prophet told you to go and clip the toenails of a dragon, certainly you would have done that to get healing. But Naaman, all the prophet said was to go and jump in the river. You've got nothing to lose except maybe your pride. So maybe you need to humble yourself and just do what the prophet says. So verse 14 says, Naaman went down to the river, to the Jordan River. He dipped and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child and he was made clean. All he had to do was obey. A simple step of obedience and he is healed. And verse 15 says, he returned to the man of God and he stood before the prophet. Now remember, Elisha, Elisha said, I'm gonna heal him so that he would know that there is a prophet in Israel. And notice what Elisha says in verse 15. He says, he stood before uh, the man of God and said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth except the God in Israel. Remember what we know about Naaman. Naaman wasn't looking for God, right? What was Naaman looking for? He was looking for a cure. He wanted to be healed. And God used his search for a cure. God used his search for healing to lead him to something better. Let me ask you this this morning. What is the difficulty that you are facing in your life right now? What's the hardship that you've got in your world? What is the pain that you are enduring? Because what if, what if God in your pain had something better for you than just a cure, right? Because so often, so often what we do is we run to God and we're like, God, God, I need you. God, I need, I need to be cured. God, I need you. I, I need a job. God, God, I need you. I need to be healed of this disease. I need to be free from this addiction. I need to overcome this fear and anxiety. I, I, need, I need comfort for the pain of, of losing this loved one that hurts so bad. God, I need something from you. What if God's purpose in your pain was bigger than just a cure? It was actually that you would see that he is your reward. What if God is allowing that pain in your life so that you would turn to him and know him? I'm not saying that this is the only reason why God allows us to suffer. But I want us to consider perhaps 
Perhaps God wants you to find him and not just a cure. So verse 15, Naaman says, hey, I get it. There's no other God than the God of Israel. And he presents him his gift. Remember all the gold and the silver and the changes of clothes? He presents all this to him. And he says, listen, I'm, I, I'm important. I'm important. I'm valuable. And so I'm not going to take this healing for free. I need to do something big for God. So here, take all this money and take all this stuff. But Elisha refused. And before God, whom he stand, he said, I will receive nothing. So let's recap our story, right? We've got this famous man by the name of Naaman, right? This is a guy who's important. He, he, he's, he's incredibly powerful and, and, and well-known. He's just a great guy. But he's sick with leprosy, and he needs to be healed. And it's not a king who heals him. And it's not a great doctor who heals him. It's a servant girl who points to the prophet in Israel, which would have been considered a backward country, a low-class people, a defeated nation, points him to a prophet in Israel. And this nobody prophet, he doesn't even answer the door. He sends out a servant. And he doesn't have this big show. He doesn't require this big sacrifice. He doesn't require anything big of Naaman. Simply, he says, I need you to take a step of faith and go jump in the river seven times. And that healing, it wasn't bought. That healing wasn't earned. That healing was simply a gift from God. Something that Naaman had to receive through a simple act of faith. And here's, here's our lesson for us this morning. It's often these small steps of faith or our small steps of obedience the result in the greatest impact in our lives. Do you realize that? Oftentimes, it's these small steps of faith, these small acts of obedience that God uses to move the biggest mountains in our lives. God's not expecting us to do these crazy, big, bold things for him. He's asking us to simply live in obedience and be faithful in the small things that God puts in front of us. In fact, as I start thinking about this series about having a bold faith, if I think about like what we want to see God do in 2022 in our own lives and in our family and in our community, in our church, it's tempting for us to look at other people and see all the great things that others are doing. It's tempting for us to think, well, if I'm going to have God work in my life, I need to go do something big and bold and risk everything for God. And maybe that's what God's asking you to do. But in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this. Jesus says, the one who is faithful in very little will also be faithful with much. You see, it's the small things that no one sees that creates the big things that everybody wants. See, as we look around, we see other people. We think, man, look at all the great things they're doing for the kingdom of God. Look at all they're doing. Look what all God's doing in their life. I want that. Listen, it's the small things that nobody sees that creates the big things that everybody wants. So let me ask you this morning. What is the small step of faith? What is the small step of obedience that God is asking you to commit to him this year? 
What is that small step of faith for you? You know, maybe, maybe for you, maybe that small step of faith is engaging with church. Maybe, maybe you're new to your faith. You're just trying to figure out this new Christian thing out. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's been a long time since you were engaged in church and maybe you've got some hurt and some pain related to some church circumstances. I'm sorry you've been through that. Maybe, maybe the pandemic has created some irregular uh, uh, habits in your life related to church. Now, I'd say this. The church is not perfect. We are made up of imperfect people. But the church is a vehicle that God has given us to have our faith grow, for us to mature. The church is a vehicle that God has given us for us to actually show our faith, our love to one another. The church is a vehicle that God has given for us to change the world. And so maybe for you, that step of faith to say, I'm gonna engage with the church. I'm gonna plug in. I'm gonna get off the sidelines and get in the game. And I'll tell you what, I am so excited for where God has brought our church over the last several years. And I am so excited for what God has in store for us in 2020. And this is a great time. This is a great time for you to plug into the church. What is that small step of faith that God is asking you to take? What is that small step of obedience that God is asking you to take this year? Maybe for you, maybe it really comes to you need to grow deeper in your faith with, with Jesus. Maybe you need to start practicing some of those spiritual disciplines. You know what those spiritual disciplines are? That's when we read God's word. That's when we pray. That's maybe when we journal. And God uses those things to take our faith and to allow us to grow deeper in love with him. And so maybe, maybe that's your step this year, is you need to, to grow deeper in love with him. And I, I don't know about you, but I'll say for me, oftentimes I say, well, I want to do that. I want to go deeper in love with God. My problem is I'm so busy. I just don't have the time for it. Like I, there's so much going on. Listen, how about a small step of faith is waking up maybe like a half hour earlier. A small step of faith is saying, you know what? I'm gonna wake up just a little bit earlier so that way I have a little bit more time to be able to devote to my relationship with God. Again, it's the little things that no one sees that creates the big things that everybody wants. So maybe that small step for you is to figure out, man, I'm gonna pursue my relationship with Jesus and go deeper with him. What is that small step of faith for you? Maybe, maybe you're hearing like, man, I feel compelled to make a difference in our world, to make a difference in our community. Man, praise God for that. Praise God for that. But you know, maybe, a, maybe, a, maybe an awesome, simple step of faith for you. You wanna change the world, that's awesome. But maybe the simple step is to start serving people around you. Start serving your neighbors. Meeting the needs of the people around you. Maybe a simple step for you is to start serving at church. You wanna change the world? but you won't serve people at church. Maybe for you, that's going and say, I'm gonna go and, and volunteer at a nonprofit in town. I'm gonna go coach a youth sports team and engage with people. We wanna make a big difference in the world, but we miss the small things right in front of us. Maybe, what is that step for you this year? What is that small step of faith? What is that small step of obedience that God is asking you to make this year? Maybe for some of you, it's finally time for you to surrender that bad habit or that secret sin. 
See, sin so often is like a snowball that goes downhill. Where you think, I'm just going to keep this secret because I don't want anyone to know about it. And it starts small. But the longer we try and keep a secret, the bigger that snowball rolls. And it gets bigger and bigger as it rolls downhill. Till eventually, eventually it destroys us. And guess what happens? That sin that you try to keep in secret, guess what? Eventually he's going to get out and everybody's going to know about it anyways. And so maybe for you, as you think about wanting to overcome some things in your life, maybe that small step of faith for you is to go and talk to somebody about it. Say, hey, pastor, can I talk to you after church today? I want to talk about some stuff that I'm dealing with. Allow some accountability. Have someone to, to walk alongside you so you are not alone. You know what Satan wants us to think? Satan wants us to think, hey, you're in trouble. You've got to handle it all on your own. Listen, that's not the way the body of Christ works. God put us in community so we can walk through things together. You don't have to carry it alone. You can get some support around you. Maybe that small step of faith for you is to invite some people into your story to say, help me through this. What is a small step of faith that God is asking of you this year? I know sometimes we get into January, beginning of the year, we're like, oh, I'm going to improve my health. I'm going to improve. I'm going to run a marathon. Listen, you want to run a marathon? Praise God for you. Go for it. But maybe a simple small step of faith would be to start walking three or four days a week. It's the little things that no one sees that creates the big things that everybody wants. What is a small step of faith for you? Maybe you're like, well, this year, I really want to see some of these relationships. I've got some broken relationships. My family's a mess. My friends, like, I, like I've burned some bridges. It's a mess. And maybe you're like, I would love to see God begin to repair some of those relationships this year. Praise God for that. I hope he does. But I'll tell you what, maybe a small step for you would be maybe you need to go and, and apologize for some of the things you've done in the past small step of faith. Or maybe for you, maybe you need to go and actually practice some forgiveness for somebody who's hurt you. Again, you want to see God do these big things. Oftentimes, it's the small steps of faith, the small steps of obedience that result in the greatest impact in our lives. It's the small things that no one sees that creates the big things that everyone wants. So what is a small step of faith for you God's put in your heart today. What is a small step of obedience that you need to take with God this year? In fact, there's, before we close, there's one more thing I want to point out from the story of Naaman. You notice Naaman almost missed out on this healing, right? He almost missed out on his healing and knowing Jesus. Why? Because jumping in the river almost sounded too simple. Well, that's too easy there's got to be something more to getting God's blessing in my life than just jumping in a dirty river. I mean, here's Naaman. Naaman comes with all of his wealth and power and prestige. And he comes and he's like, Elisha, Elisha, like, I need healing and I'm important. Like, Elisha, you want me on your team? You should see all the things I can do for you, Elisha. You can see all the things I can do for, for your God. I could build you a church. I could, I could, I could get you all sorts of attention. I could, I could do all sorts of great things for you, Elisha. And then isn't that sometimes what we do? Oftentimes it's tied to our guilt. We feel guilty. We're like, man, I need to do something big for God. I'll donate a bunch of money. I'll go on a missions trip. 
I'll do something for God. And why do we do that? Because we're trying to earn God's favor. And so here's Naaman coming to Elisha. Look at all I can do. Look how great I am. And Elisha says, God is not impressed with your human greatness or your wealth. See, here's here's what Elisha's teaching us. God doesn't save us or heal us because we deserve it. God doesn't save us or heal us because of anything that we have done. Our money, our abilities, our success, our power, our strength, those things are worthless to God. Because our salvation is not found in our achievements. Our salvation is not found in our education. Our salvation is not found in our wealth or in our accolades. Our, 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 our salvation is not found in, in, in how good we are persevering, how strong we are. No, God saves us through faith alone. In fact, the gospel story, the reason why we exist as a church, says that the love of God displayed through the cross, it shows that we are powerless to save ourselves. See, salvation is found in a man who we thought so little of that we crucified him. That is where salvation is found. And we experience that salvation. We experience the peace of God like Naaman did when we humble ourselves by faith and we trust what God says. And when we place our faith in him alone, that is when we become right with God. Experience that relationship with him. That is when we come to know the peace that he offers, the peace that he describes as passing all understanding. Listen, I want you to hear this morning, God's not asking you to go through a bunch of hoops. He's not asking you to clean up your life and make yourself better. He's asking you simply to believe in Jesus, to believe in what he's done for you on the cross and to receive him as Lord of your life because when we do that, that is when we become sons and daughters of God.